you have your Bibles, be turning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we read just a moment ago. We completed 1 Thessalonians last Sunday morning, and so we begin Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church today. If there were ever two books that were made to be preached back to back, it is these two letters. Uh, not only because they are consecutive letters, but they were actually written very close together, uniquely close together, we might even say. And for that reason, they're dealing with a lot of the same issues. Certainly, it's the same authors to the same church, but they're dealing with a lot of the same issues and, and the problems that had arisen in the first letter. And so uh, it's, a, it's an interesting second letter because it follows really within a few weeks. As if you can imagine how long it took for the first letter to get to Thessalonica, for them to read it, have some problems in interpreting that letter, send back for more instruction or with more questions, and then Paul to write another letter and get it back to them, that's about the time between these two. Some people think, I think Leon Morris estimates about three weeks. Uh, it could have been four or five, but it certainly wasn't much longer than that. So very unique that we'd have two letters written this close together, and so they're very interesting. So it won't take a lot of background today. We did a lot of that work in First Thessalonians, but we want to look at this letter today, and we want to begin with this greeting. So we're going to read it again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we begin today, we want to look at three points briefly today. First of all, the letter's continuity. First of all, the letter's continuity. Second of all, the letter's greeting. And then lastly, the letter's purpose. And I hope this will get us off to a good start as we begin this letter. So beginning where it's logical to begin, the very beginning here, we want to think about this letter. We find a greeting here, and it's a greeting that's very much in continuity with the greeting in the first letter. And we'll look at that when we come to our second point. But it reminds us that there is much in continuity between these letters. We're going to see that as we walk through them. We're going to see a lot of similar themes and issues and Paul's going to deal with them in similar ways, although there will be differences because Paul's having to give a little more explanation to certain things. And so we're going to see some similar themes. It would be good to remember as we are beginning that 1 Thessalonians was written in A.D. 50. And we can be pretty sure about that. There's an inscription uh, in Corinth when Paul wrote this letter that tells us who was in charge of it and with Acts we can date it very accurately to AD 50 and since I mentioned earlier this letter was written very soon after 1 Thessalonians it was likely written in AD 50 as well and so uh, Paul had spent some time if you remember in Thessalonica he had been going through Macedonia he had been to Philippi had left Philippi and went to Thessalonica you may remember spent just a couple of weeks there two to three weeks something like that there had incredible success Incredible success in a very short amount of time. Many people coming to faith in Christ, the word being proclaimed in power, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. In power and in the Spirit, he says, and with much conviction, the text says. And so Paul tells us God was moving mightily in such a short period of time, but some events happened, didn't they? A riot occurred, and Jason, the house church leader in Thessalonica, was arrested, and for the best we can tell, there was an arrangement made that they would release Jason if the troublemakers, Paul and Silas and Timothy, would leave town. Hit the road, and we'll let him go. So Paul had to leave. 
But I think Paul had in mind, as we looked at in 1 Thessalonians, of coming back as soon as possible. Coming back to finish the work he believed he started. And he was concerned about this church because they were left on their own, to their own, he thought. Now, he knew, of course, the Holy Spirit. He knew that God was working through them. But he was concerned because persecution had already arisen before he left. How would this church stand without some more mature believers there to kind of guide them and encourage them, exhort them? So Paul's concerned. He goes to Berea, and the troublemakers from Thessalonica follow him there. And they stir up trouble there, so he has to leave again. And this time he leaves on his own and goes to Athens. And so you all kind of can place that in the history of Acts. Silas and Timothy are kind of on their own. Paul says, hey, I see an opportunity to send you all back. I can't go. Satan has hindered me, but I see an opportunity for you to go back. So it seems that Silas went back to Philippi. Timothy went to Thessalonica. Paul's hoping to get a report. How's this church doing? Are they still thriving? Have they been killed? What is the, what's the story on the church at Thessalonica? I believe that they are true converts, but I'm concerned for them. He sends Timothy back. He, at some point, goes to Corinth. Timothy returns to him there and gives him a report that is an unbelievable report. And In fact, if we read 1 Thessalonians again, which we're not going to do, but you can go back and read it on your own, in chapter 1, that is an outline of a thriving young church, an infant church, but a thriving church. Paul says, you're standing in joy in the face of persecution. You had once followed our example, now you're setting the example for others. Your faith is spoken of through all the region of Macedonia. In fact, you're evangelizing people, not only in Thessalonica, but also throughout all of Macedonia, and even into Achaia, which was the neighboring region. Region. And so Paul says, it's unbelievable what you're doing. In fact, Paul says, you're doing such a good job, it's as if there's nothing left for us to do. The mission team had hoped to come back and evangelize Macedonia. We may not need to now. You all are doing such an outstanding job. So it's an incredible church, but whatever update Timothy brought had a few issues with it as well. There were some struggles in the church. One of the big issues you may remember was a misunderstanding of the day of the Lord or the parousia of Christ, his return. There was some confusion there. There was some confusion on uh, what Paul calls disorderly living. There were some Christians in the church that were not working. They were devoting themselves to spiritual disciplines while they were waiting for Christ's return, which they believed to be immediate. And so Paul is having to deal with some of those issues. So he writes this letter. Now, how can we establish that 2 Thessalonians is written so close behind 1 Thessalonians? Well, there's a few reasons for that. First of all, by Acts 20, Paul's going back through Macedonia. Right? So right after he leaves Corinth, he goes back through Macedonia. It couldn't be written later than that. It wouldn't make sense for Paul to be updating what he had said to them in the first letter so long afterwards, especially if he had been there in the meantime. It wouldn't make sense that Paul had been there in person and says, oh, by the way, I should have updated you while I was there. So it happens before Paul leaves Corinth. And there's another reason we can feel pretty confident of that. After Berea, the only time that we know that these three men are ministering together, Paul and Silas and Timothy, is in Corinth. So there's a lot of evidence that makes us believe that this was written very soon afterwards. Now, the reason we believe very soon in that year and a half that Paul was in Corinth is the issues are clearly very fresh here. Paul's going to deal with these things like I've just been talking to you about them. I've just said something on them. I need to elaborate. And so you'll get the sense as we read this that this is not long after. 
And as I said a moment ago, Leon Morris, as many New Testament scholars, hold that this was written in a period of weeks after the first letter. And so the evidence seems to back that up. So here is a letter written by the same mission team to the same church at Thessalonica, dealing with many of the same issues and written within a few weeks after the letter we just finished. So we don't need a lot of background here. Uh, These letters are very much in in continuity with one another, and I believe we will see that as we move forward. And that brings us to our second point, the letter's greeting. So Paul is going to greet this church that he's just written a letter to not long before. And I mentioned a moment ago that the greetings are even in continuity. And you can see that if you turn to 1 Thessalonians, it's just a few pages back, you'll see this greeting. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the difference between the two greetings is so subtle you may not even notice there's a difference. It's a very subtle difference, but we're reminded of the importance of being very careful with God's Word and looking at each word. You may remember that Jesus makes a defense of an entire theological point of the resurrection by telling those who are challenging Him that God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The tense of a verb made an entire theological argument for Christ. And so we want to be careful here. What is the difference? Well, listen again. 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very similar greetings, but one change. Paul changes the reference to our Heavenly Father from the Father to our Father. Now that's a very significant change in just a single word, isn't it? Very significant change. That much of the New Testament tells us about over and over again. The significance of our relationship to our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus. That we too are His children in Christ. Something very important. God is our Father if we're found in Christ Jesus because if you're in Christ, you have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 8, verse 14? that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These are sons of God. Now that's an intimacy that Jesus himself spoke about, isn't it? In the prayer that he modeled for his disciples, he said, How are we to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father. Jesus didn't just say my Father, but he included his followers, his disciples in that saying, Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. Paul can refer to God as our Father because he is writing to a church of born-again believers in Christ Jesus who have God as their Father through Christ Jesus. And so the entire greeting is significant, even beyond that. They stand in Christ, therefore they can claim God as our Father or collectively as our Father, individually also, but collectively even as the church, as the the ecclesia, the the gathering of God's people, they are children of God if they are in Christ by His righteousness. Now this entire greeting is significant because it reminds us, because it says, by the way, to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father. The church is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If the church is not in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not a church. It is only a church insofar as it is in Christ Jesus. We have no other authority 
under which to gather and meet. It is in Christ. It is His church. And so again, Paul makes that clear. It is in Christ that we have the authority to be a church. And notice that he says after that, that that he greets them with grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now this is a very common greeting, isn't it? We know that. Throughout his letters, he often uh, greets churches with grace and peace. And of course, these are significant words. Charis, the word for grace, it, it means right God's favor, His goodwill, unmerited by us, but given to us. Grace is at the heart of all that we have in Christ Jesus. All that we are in Christ Jesus is by God's grace. And so Paul wants to remind them of the gracious God we serve and of the grace that we are called to have one toward the other. Here he's speaking of the grace of God toward the church, but also reminds them throughout the letter of the grace that the church is to have toward one another. So it's a consistent greeting. And Paul is talking about our status as a congregation. And uh, there's much that can be said about that. We've looked at it in the past. But this word, ecclesia, this word for gathering or church that we come to, is the word used in the Septuagint for the Old Testament congregation of Israel. It's a word that means called out ones. Those who God has called out of society, if you will, to be His people. Holy. That's what the word means, isn't it? To be separated unto God. Holy. So again, we see this again, this idea of God's people. Now, if there is no atonement for sin, there is no called out people. Right? If, if Christ did not come, if He did not give His life, then we're all in Adam. And Paul goes through in Romans the theology of what that would mean for us. Loss, no hope, no possibility of salvation. But because Christ came, because Christ came, then there is an ecclesia. And so we come back again to the idea again of grace being at the heart of all that we have in Christ Jesus. The wondrous grace of God that saves fallen sinners. If you want a picture of that grace, by the way, just turn to the very next letter. Just a couple of pages. 1 Timothy. This is one of my favorite little parts of Scripture. I love what Paul says here. Paul recognized his need of grace. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief or foremost. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, Paul recognized his own need of grace. I'm sure as he thought back to his life before Christ, even persecuting the church, as Christ himself says in Acts, his persecution of Christ himself, right? Paul recognized the grace of God in saving him as a model or pattern that God saves sinners. And so again, we can see that how important grace is to Paul and how focused on grace he is as we read his letters. Now, that's another evidence of continuity, by the way, the amount of grace in Paul's letters. Look at the benediction to the previous letter, which is on the previous page. Paul ends 1 Thessalonians with, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And then he begins this letter, Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read Paul's letters, you see grace through them over and over again in abundance.
Now the second greeting there is of peace, Irene. And that word means peace, the absence of conflict, the Greek word does. But if you were to look at what Paul is really referring to, he's referring back to the Old Testament idea of shalom, the Hebrew idea of shalom, which was more than just the absence of war or conflict. It was the idea of standing holy, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, in wholeness before the face of God. Right? Having a right spiritual relationship with God, having the blessings of God, all of these things are pictured in that word shalom. And Paul is kind of referring back to that. It was a common Jewish greeting, even to this day, isn't it? Among Jews, they greet one another, shalom. And so we see again this idea of not only grace, but the peace that's found in God. The peace that's found in God. In fact, the order's even right, right? Once we have the grace of God and are found in Christ, then we have the peace of God. First of all, we have peace with God, as Paul would have us know in Romans again. But again, we see here this important idea of Paul saying, as a church in Jesus Christ, serving God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, remember the importance of grace and peace in all that you have and all that you are. And that really brings us to our third point this morning. And I told you I thought we'd be quick because we've done a lot of the hard work in 1 Thessalonians. What is the letter's purpose? What is the letter's purpose? Well, one of the important things is Paul over and over again wants the believers that he's writing to, whether it's in Corinth or Thessalonica or wherever, right? Philippi, Colossae, wherever he's writing, he wants them to know the importance of grace, the importance of the way God is working in them, the importance of God's plan for them, and that they might grow in their faith mightily. In fact, we looked just a few weeks ago at the end of 1 Thessalonians that Paul has a prayer, doesn't he? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Paul was not just praying for our sanctification, but he was praying that we would recognize that God is working to sanctify us completely. Now, it isn't going to happen in my lifetime that I'm going to be sanctified completely. That would mean glorified. But Paul knows that for all in Christ, they will be sanctified completely. Paul doesn't leave that up in the air, does he? Look at it again, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Again, what God starts, he finishes. That's what Paul's saying. God is not a failure. right? God is not one who fails. If God begins a good work in you, he will see it through to completion. That's what Paul is saying, I know that not only am I praying that you'll be sanctified completely, I have 100% confidence that if you're in Christ, you will be sanctified completely, which means glorified. Now, we could turn back to Romans 8 and read what Paul says about that there, couldn't we? Paul says there's no question what force could stop God. What force of creation could stop God? What spiritual force could stop God? He created all things physical and spiritual. He alone is The Trinitarian God is the uncreated. Everything else is His creation. He holds power over it. He alone is omnipotent. What could stop Him? What force could stop Him? What obstacle could stop Him? What person could lay a charge against the elect of God? What person could say, I've got an objection to Rick Powell? Well, there is someone who can, right? Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. But what will Satan tell God that he doesn't already know? What would Satan tell God that he hasn't already long considered before time began? Again, the argument here 
that Paul is getting at is that God will finish what he starts. And by the way, take comfort in that. If, he, if it's not certain that he will, then what about all these promises found in Scripture? Are they worth anything? If God doesn't finish what he begins, how can I trust the book of Revelation? Or any other book that speaks about God's working throughout time. If there is any force that can thwart God, then my friends, the Bible can be put away. Might have some moral teachings for us, but then we're right back to Thomas Jefferson and the Jefferson Bible. Just keep the moral parts in and throw the rest of it away. Our confidence in the Word of God is that it is the Word of God. And as Paul says in Romans 9, the Word of God did not fail to stand, and it cannot fail to stand. Right? It will stand. It cannot be undercut. It cannot have its legs cut out from under it. That's the picture Paul gives there. And so again, Paul says you can trust in these promises. And God's purpose is to sanctify his people completely. Now, Paul is always working to that end. If you find a letter that Paul has written, he is working to that end. He is not only laying out a theological foundation for believers, usually in the first half of his letters, but the second half of the letters is what? Exhortations. Exhortations. And in fact, all of Paul's teachings are teaching, admonishing, correcting, encouraging, exhorting the people of God to grow in their sanctification. To teach you how to grow in your faith. To teach you how to walk out the faith that you have in Christ Jesus by His grace. Now also, by your work, right? We are saved by grace alone, but our sanctification we are called to be actively involved in. That's why Paul can say, get to mortifying the flesh, killing the flesh, walk in obedience, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecy, test all things, hold fast to what is good. These are commands to believers that they might grow in their walk with the Lord and in their faith before God. Now, all of that is the purpose of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. We come to it again. He writes 2 Thessalonians for what purpose? Well, to encourage and to correct, to teach and to exhort. Now we just mentioned it follows right after 1 Thessalonians. Now why is that? Well, the, the shocking truth is 1 Thessalonians didn't do everything Paul had hoped it would. Paul wrote a letter. He said, I'm going to basically exhort and encourage the believers and I'm going to correct them on some things and all will be on a good path. Except Paul gets word very quickly that it didn't have that effect. It solved some of what he wanted to do. In fact, if you were going to lay out the five things Paul wanted to do in 1 Thessalonians, they would be he would want to encourage the faithful who were enduring persecution. He wanted to offer an apologia, a defense of his actions. That's chapter 2, where Paul walks through and explains why he left and why he hasn't returned. That it isn't that he doesn't care for the church. That he longs to be with them, but Satan has hindered him, and he's not been able to return. His third point was he wanted to exhort the church in their walk before God. Four, to deal with those who were refusing to be orderly or to work. And five, to deal with questions of the parousia of Christ. Now we walked through 1 Thessalonians, and we looked at all these subjects. All these subjects. Unfortunately, the results of Paul's first letter were mixed. It seems to have answered the questions in chapter 2, the apology. It seems like uh, Paul's apology was successful. There doesn't seem to be the same kind of questions moving forward that there were that he had to answer in 1 Thessalonians. His exhortations seem to have worked pretty well. Unfortunately, the big two issues don't seem to have cleared up. There seems to be a continuing problem of those who are not orderly within the church, and there seems to be continuing questions on the policy of Christ. Has he returned? 
has that promise been fulfilled and some of us missed it? And if it hasn't happened yet, but it's about to happen, what about those who have died? Remember all those things we looked at in 1 Thessalonians. Well, those questions still are around, and we're going to see them as we walk through 2 Thessalonians. One of the other things that Paul recognizes is, as he writes 2 Thessalonians, is the need to continue encouraging believers. Now, my friends, that's nothing new to Paul. If you ever read a man who needed encouragement, it is Paul. Over and over again, you see Paul who is always so faithful and and desiring to live out his faith before God in a way that would honor Christ. But there are times we get a little picture, isn't there, uh, of Paul being discouraged. I stood at the tribunal and no one stood with me, Paul says. No one stood with me. I stood alone, except Christ was there with me. Thanks be to Christ for standing with me when no one would. We spoke not too long ago about in Acts when Paul was in the Caesarean jail cell. And I think he was really heartbroken that night. And Luke writes that the Lord visited him in his cell. The Lord visited him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. Take heart. Be encouraged. As you have stood here, you will stand before Caesar in Rome. Can you imagine Paul's joy at that? I mean, Paul had always longed to go to Rome. He began to wonder, is it ever going to happen? Maybe that was just a a personal hope of mine and it isn't going to happen in the will of God. But Christ comes to him and says, Paul, don't be discouraged. Lift up your head. Be encouraged. You're going to testify to me in Rome. My friends, there are times Paul needs encouragement. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, We almost despaired for life itself. This is a man like the rest of us. I mean, he might have been a little further along in his walk, a little further along in his sanctification, but he was still a man, still prone to disappointments and sorrows, wondering, doubts occasionally. He's not fully glorified yet. He's like the rest of us. So Paul knows the importance of encouragement. He knows the importance of encouragement. And my friends, if you've been in this walk with Christ for very long, you know the need for encouragement. Because there are times that we're discouraged by things in the world, by things even in our own walk of faith. So Paul understood. And Paul knew that when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, they had been dealing with persecution for a few weeks. From the time he left until the time he wrote that letter, excuse me, maybe three or four weeks, they'd been dealing with persecution. And I've always said it, I believe this, you can deal with almost anything for a short time. Think about physical pain, whatever it may be. If you know it's a short time, you can kind of grit and bear it, can't you? But when things feel like they're going on and on and on, that's where it wears you down. Oftentimes in our prayer meetings, we pray for people who are going through long health battles. Why? Because after a while, encouragement, right, can really begin to be lost. And it encourages believers to know, hey, I've got some brothers and sisters over here who are praying for me. I've gone through incredible grief at the loss of a loved one. I know there are people praying for me, and that encourages me before the Lord. Maybe just a word to remind them of the promises that we have in Scripture. By the way, how often does Paul remind believers of the promises of God, to encourage them. My friends, we need those encouragements. Paul needed those encouragements. He knows these believers who continue to be persecuted need encouragement because it's not looking like a temporary thing anymore. It's not looking like, well, maybe we can get through a a few weeks of persecution and things will begin to ease up. By now, it's going on for a few months. 
And Paul begins to recognize this is probably going to be a pattern for this church. By the way, we've spoken about this many times, but it's important we remember it. Persecution is a pattern for many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. Consistently. Doesn't cease, doesn't let up. They meet in danger every time they gather. Whether it be in China, whether it be somewhere in the Middle East, wherever they might meet, they have to meet in danger. That at any moment a door could be kicked in. That at any moment they might be rounded up. My friends, we have brothers and sisters around the world today that need our prayers and encouragement. They need to be remembered. And my friends, it's been very easy to be a Christian in America for a long time. We've got to be honest about that. We've not really faced persecution for our beliefs. But I think over time we've seen the tide changing a little bit. Now, being pro-life seems like it's becoming a minority position. Or at least, let me put it this way. Some polling shows that actually pro-life is growing. But as a popular position, it is shrinking. Right? All the loud voices in the media and society are very much telling you if you are pro-life, you're some kind of fascist. And we can look across the board. If you're going to stand on God's word, you're going to be called a lot of names today. It's just the reality of it. Many of us have had friends that those friendships are gone over issues like gay marriage or whatever where they just sent. It's not even that we're trying to beat them over the head, right? Oftentimes, if you don't basically accept the other side, if you don't simply say, I'll go along with gay marriage, I'll say it's perfectly fine. You're going to lose those friendships. My friends, those things, maybe once or twice, maybe you can endure them, but as it happens over and over, you're going to need endurance, tenacity, strength in the Lord, encouragement. Where do you find it? Well, the same place Paul found it. The same place the early Christians found it. The same place our Chinese brothers and sisters find it today, or Iranian brothers and sisters find it today. They find it in the Word of God. Paul is simply proclaiming the word of God. He's simply saying, don't forget the grace and the peace you have in Jesus Christ, even if there's a lack of peace in your life in the present. The reality is you have an eternal peace in Christ Jesus. And my friends, don't forget the promise of Peter that even the persecutions that we deal with, and like I said, ours truly are temporary and light. Right? These are not, we don't deal with what our brothers and sisters deal with. We don't deal with what the Thessalonians were dealing with. There were Thessalonians who were dying. But Peter reminds those he's writing to that God is working through those things, isn't he? Just as silver is put into the, the cauldron, the crucible, and heated up in fire, that the, the dross might rise to the top and be scraped away so the silver might be more pure, so your faith, which is much more precious than silver or gold that perishes, is what? Being perfected by God. Being perfected by God. He is at work in you and on you that you might be conformed to the express image of Christ. Paul reminds these Thessalonians over and again that that is what God is doing. It doesn't always look like it to us or we would certainly prefer a more comfortable path. But what Paul's going to remind the believers of is did Jesus have an easier path? Jesus was despised. Jesus was beaten, persecuted every step along the way. And what we're told over and over again in Scripture is, is the servant greater than his master? If Jesus endured these things, why would you expect that if you're being faithful, you won't? Why would you expect that you won't? My friends, I pray that as we go through this letter, we'll think about these Thessalonian believers who are facing these realities. Not theoretical realities, not light realities that they think could get worse over time, 
They're dealing with serious and difficult realities in the present. And Paul is writing to them to say a couple of things. First of all, God is at work in these situations. And he is working all things together. He is truly working all things together for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. But also, he wants to remember the great hope that we have in Christ's return, which is coming, Paul says. Maybe not as quickly as you thought it is, immediate, you know, they thought it was immediate. But it is coming. It's always imminent, if you will, and always close. Be ready for it. And know that on that day of the Lord, that day when he returns, all evil will fall under judgment and all his people shall be vindicated. In fact, uh, the sermon from Wednesday night that finished Obadiah is God vindicates his people. And that's what Obadiah is talking about. Obadiah says, it's not just that Edom's going to be judged, but God is going to pass that judge of wrath and judgment to all the nations. All the nations. But on that day when the enemies of God fall, the righteous will stand. Amen. Amen.